Dotnet Rocks episode 850 with guest Steve Smith. Recorded live Wednesday, February 20th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Dine the Rocks, Carl and Richard. We're here. Uh, one more time at the MVP Global Summit in the Seattle area. We're in Bellevue, actually. Hello, sir. How are you? The weather is uh, cold and wet. Funny how Seattle is like that. We did have a little sunshine, a little bit, not too much, just enough to tease us. Yeah, just when you're out walking around, if you're in the sun, it wasn't too bad. And as soon as you went in the shade, it was bad. <laughs> hey, better no framework. All right, what do you got? Well, this is kind of going to be a fun show because we're talking about anti-patterns and Steve Smith is here. We'll get to him in a minute. But uh, I figured that I would um, ask you a little question about uh, a class uh, in the .NET framework. It's system.platform not supported exception. What? (laughs) And here's the question. Is it supported in the portable class library? Yes or no? Yes. It has to be, doesn't it? Yeah, I would think. In fact, that would be the very first class I would implement in any implementation. (laughs) Can you imagine in the portable class library, you go and access something that isn't there and there's no platform uh, not supported exception. So, then you'd have a platform not accepted, platform not accepted exception. (laughs) And I was recalling uh, Rory Blythe, uh, uh, previous co-host of this show, but one of his funniest lines when Silverlight 1.0 came out and it was uh, there was basically nothing in there, he said, yeah, it's basically a wraparound system dot not implemented exception. <laughs> uh, we miss Rory from time to time. Who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment out of show 833, and that's the one we called What Developers Should Care About in 2013. It was the panel discussion that we did at Dev Intersections in the wintertime. We had uh, uh, K. Scott Allen, uh, Michelle Rivastamante, Kate Gregory, and Woody Pewitt on the panel. This comment comes from Richard Rukima, who says, I'm not sure who said it, but the, quote, avalanche of technology, close quote, as it pertains to JavaScript frameworks, is killing me. All I see is that each of these frameworks is simply there to replicate what we already had in Silverlight. Breeze for link-like queries on the client, Knockout.js for data buying, etc., etc., I get it that browsers don't want to run plugins, particularly if they're coming from competing vendors, but what is the difference between framework providing X functionality and having that functionality within a plugin? Now, Richard, I'm not going to... This this has got nothing to do with competing vendors. Apple decided it wasn't going to run plugins in any of its browsers, and it became a substantial part of the market, and so we had to walk away from plugins. That's, That's really where this started. I mean, there's other reasons, too. Plugins are a malware vector, but I would not make this like a war or anything. It's not, there's no intention there. He goes on to say, uh, the reason why plugins are now not in favor is not for the benefit of the user. Totally disagree. But for the benefit of the browser brand. Benefit of the browser brand? And who can do what, where? I'm wondering when we are going to see these same issues with frameworks. Will Chrome allow a JavaScript framework to execute in the browser if Microsoft wrote it? 
wow, I'd like to see how they would stop you. It's just JavaScript. Uh, remember SQL and the flavors of that syntax? That was also not a war. That was everybody trying to build new features and a compliance committee that couldn't keep up. We are right now in the technology curve where necessity is the mother of innovation and frameworks are exploding all over to cover vertical segments of functionality. However, somebody will combine all these. And we will get back to something that will look mostly like Silverlight. Mm, I don't know that I buy that. Next, we will be rewriting and revising these various JavaScript frameworks. If your app uses these or better yet, gets them from a central repository, applications will start breaking. Think about DLL hell, but now it's happening in real time. You know, you can run your own copy of JavaScript and then nobody can break it but you. I'm not sure this is progress at all for the user, but since Silverlight has been taken from the Microsoft roadmap, I'm not sure how to advise my clients on a web strategy that they won't be rewriting in six months. Shall we all chime in on this? Because, you know, Rich, I'm just going to say it for the, for the top. Like, you're looking for conspiracy where it doesn't exist. But I'm going to send you a mug anyway. So, you know, enjoy the .NET Rocks mug. And if you want a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com. Rich, I feel your pain. I mean, that's all I can say. Uh, you know, not uh, coming into JavaScript a little bit late. Uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I wish it were... Uh, another way but it, that's just the way it is but i do feel your pain well before we go any further i need to tell you that pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with over 300 hardcore developer training courses authored by mvps industry experts people that appear on our show they released 12 to 15 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial giving you 200 minutes of access to their library Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything and everything you can think of on the Microsoft stack, including lots of courses on C-Sharp. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce a Pluralsight author and a, a veteran of .NET Rocks, Steve Smith. Steve is an Executive Vice President of Services for Telerik. Telerik Services provides consulting, training, and other services to Telerik's enterprise clients and partners. Steve is also a Microsoft Regional Director and MVP, as well as a frequent speaker at software developer conferences and events. Steve has, with his wife and partner Michelle, started and sold a number of businesses in his career, including one of the first online developer community websites, ASPAlliance.com, the first Microsoft developer advertising network, Lake Quincy Media, and a successful agile consulting company, Nimble Pros. Steve has written or contributed to a number of books, most recently 97 Things Every Programmer Should Know. Welcome, Steve. Hey, Carl. Hey, Richard. Thank you. Welcome back. We, uh, of course, love you for your awesome calendars, uh, the anti-pattern calendars. What's the official title of the calendar? Uh, these are software craftsmanship motivational calendars. And we've, we've been going back and forth between best practices and anti-patterns. So last year's was an anti-patterns theme. This year is, is more best practices. And uh, it, it's an illustration of what not to do. Yes, usually yeah. the illustration is, is what's the bad thing if you don't follow this practice. Yeah, because the actual I mean, statement on it is our genuine good agile practices things like keeping it simple and separating concerns and so forth exactly but your representation of it in the graphic is invariably kind of an evil thing right yeah we're definitely going for a little bit of humor and irony with these images you know you have to look at it for a whole month so we wanted it to be something interesting and, <laughs> and funny or at least something that you kind of look at and go what are they doing there yeah we kind of messed up so we, we got 12 of them i guess we should run them down they're all good principles to talk about 
Sure. And are we going to try to describe the pictures for the for the listening audience? Because I think you know there's some value to that. Yeah, I'll I'll let you guys do that. Oh, all right. Pass me that calendar there, Richard. So let's start with the uh, first one. Keep it simple. So yeah, the keep it simple principle. Uh, you know, very important for software development. Easy for us to get wrong. We like to build complex things to prove how smart we are. And and sometimes it's better to just you know do something a little bit simpler that gets the job done. Yeah, and uh, if only there were an easier way. So I'm looking at the what I, what I see here is a computer monitor that says press enter to begin build dot dot dot. Interestingly, that the color for the background of that screen is blue. I don't know what that means. And then we have a Rube Goldberg looking mousetrap device uh, put together with a with a golden hammer. Uh, tied to a string with some pulleys uh, and some clamps holding those pulleys onto some sort of rod. Another clamp uh, holding a pulley that's holding a basket with, uh, you know, the mousetrap basket, you know, that the the ball goes into, it looks like. And then there's some, I don't know, looks like a pencil uh, holding that up precariously perched with some balls inside of it. And then a whole bunch of dominoes arranged in an order like they're going to fall down so uh that's that's uh just a whole lot of complex there did you guys actually build this thing oh yeah this so i mean you took these photos for, for almost all of these we we had our team at, at Telerik services build these this uh, is hilarious and, like, and take all the photos yes photos. did it work <laughs> Uh, I don't recall if they actually <laughs> tested the, that running. Did it actually hit the enter key? I don't know. It's, I don't know. But clearly an, an example of not keeping it simple. Exactly. And, and I came to it backwards. I guess I guess you would start by flipping that stream of dominoes, and then that would uh, uh, release the balls into the basket, which would pull down the pulley, and then the hammer, which is pr- uh, perched on some Legos, is over a keyboard um, over the enter key. And uh, that's... That's all it takes to kick off the build is to start takes. the domino chain. Yeah. Well, that's funny. So, uh, where do you see the, the KISS principle grossly violated? Well, I see I, – I do a lot with, uh, you know, solid principles. And right. my, one of the, the first one, obviously, is the single responsibility principle. And when you have classes that don't have a single responsibility, they often get very, very complex. And so, anytime you have methods or classes that are hundreds of lines long – uh, it, it tends to be something you could probably simplify by extracting some methods or extracting mm. some classes. And that's the smell. You can sort of smell like switch statements or, or dead giveaway, right? Yes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's not that uh, as soon as a method gets a certain length, it must be bad. It's that gives you the sense of we should probably look at this and say, does it really need to be this big? Exactly. Sometimes it does need to be this big. Yeah. And it was a code rush that had a cyclomatic complexity evaluator that uh, – yeah, I think theirs shows up in real time on the on the method names, and then Visual Studio, of course, will do the analysis as mm. well. So, and there's other other tools. Yeah, Cyclomatic Complexity is now built into Studio too, so you can you can always check that number if you want to. Right, I didn't know that. So, how would you go about doing that? Uh, you can just right click on your project and mm. run analysis, and it'll show you lines of code and Cyclomatic Complexity by method or by class. Wow, very cool. Yeah, and the grid will sort so you can put the ugliest ones at the top. Exactly. And they have a maintainability index too, <laughs> which is sort of an aggregate of, of various factors that, you know, lower numbers are bad and higher numbers are good. So do you you uh I guess, you know, you start writing code just freeform the way you would normally write it in your old bad habits and then you run this thing and extract all your methods and refactor the hell out of it and run it again and you'll feel like uh, you've done something for the day. 
you can do that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we, I in, guess, uh, you know, the obvious thing is, you know, write it simply the first time. In an earlier uh, calendar, we had a, an image for the Boy Scout rule, which is what I like to follow when writing code. So, like, basically what that means is, you know, leave the code better than you found it. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, I like so, the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. That one's good, too. <laughs> But don't try and fix everything in your code in one check-in. Just as you're doing other things, as you're fixing a bug or adding a feature, clean up the code a little bit so that it doesn't rot over time. Yeah, what I do appreciate about the cyclomatic complexity and maintainability measures is when you refactor. Is when you, you suddenly realize, hey, I'm doing this, you know, I'm repeating myself here. I'm doing this three times in three different pieces of code. Let's reorganize it this way. And you actually end up with net less code and more importantly, net less complexity. I don't, I don't think doing a comparison at a base level on an app makes a lot of sense there. It's between refactorings that you, where you really see those numbers make sense. Sure. Yeah. Although there are some uh, guidelines. Like if your cyclomatic complexity is like over 50, then it's just insane and you should, you know, run away now. Yeah. So. You, this is going to be right once code. Yes. You know, just flag the top of it. Do not go here. There be dragons. Exactly. Shall we move on to number two? So separation of concerns. Oh, yeah, this is one of my favorite images. So, this one's actually a picture of our, our refrigerator at our Hudson office. And Telerik. beautifully clean, but filled with inappropriate items. Or actually, every one of these items would almost be appropriate, just not together. Yeah, and this, this is it. I mean, you have milk in the upper left-hand corner there, right next to a bottle of Drano. And then some orange juice and some colon cleaner. I don't know what that is. Next to Clorox. I don't know what you're trying to say there. And then I like the uh, plate of open air meat, unwrapped meat, like hamburgers. Yeah, sitting right beside a sewer uh, yeah, uh, plumbing snake. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and then don't forget the big wrench, too. There's a great big wrench there. And on the door, you have a plunger, a toilet brush. On the other side, there's a can of Raid. Uh, you know, that's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, fortunately, we'd just gotten a new refrigerator, and then we went out and just got brand new uh, implements that hadn't been previously used that we used to take this shot, but it, it turned out pretty well, I it's thought. All shiny and new, but, and the tagline is, don't let your plumbing code pollute your software. Yeah, so separation of concerns is, is another huge one that's, you know, spoken about quite a bit these days. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it can be anything from different responsibilities, like we just talked about with mm -hmm. single responsibility principle, or different layers of abstraction, you know, where you don't want to have things that relate to where you're persisting something be discussed at the same level where you're doing business level, you know, business rule concerns. Sure. Yeah, just separate and thinking through those particular things. Is that is another refactoring element is when you realize hey, you know, we've conjoined two different ideas here that maybe we didn't fully understand when we were initially implementing. Now we see them as two separate ideas. Right. Is there such a thing as too much separation of concerns? I think so. Uh, there's there's too much abstraction, too. Yeah. You know, we, we have the saying that anything in programming can be solved by another layer of abstraction, except yeah. for too many layers of abstraction. Exactly. Um, All things in moderation, including moderation. Exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> the point, yeah. The point being, you don't always want to be that moderate. Sometimes you do have to go a little off the rails, but it's an exception, not the rule. Yeah, if you start naming your layers, layer one, layer two, layer three, there's a smell for you that you've got too many levels of interaction. Yeah, it's usually, in my experience, a good idea to write the code as simple as you can the first time. Right. Uh, and then only after it starts to get painful. I, in, in my talks, I talk about pain-driven development. Sure. So, absolutely. When it starts to bite you, that's when you start refactoring it and separating it. Unless, unless you just know from experience that you're going to have to have, say, a separate library for your persistence. Right. Because you, know, you do that every time. Well, then you could just start with that. But yeah, I don't call it a smell. It's almost like hair on the back of your neck. I go back into a chunk of code and look at it and go, 
uh, that little cringe, like, oh, it's time to clean this up. Like, you got to go look at it. Yep. As opposed to, you get a smile on your face of, I know what this does. I know where it goes. Boy, I, w- I was thinking well that day. Right. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Okay, number three. This would be this would be March. Uh, read the manual. When all else fails, read the instructions. And the image is of a chair that looks like it's been put together because we have some screws and uh, you know pliers. And again, that golden hammer. I love that metaphor, the golden hammer, um, where two of the legs of the chair. Well, actually, the whole seat of the chair has been put on the back of the chair backwards, and so the two legs in the front are sticking up. And the seat is actually uh, heading towards the floor, pointing towards the floor. Yeah. Read the manual. RTFM. Right. Or at least, you know, let me Google that for you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Uh, How did you get a chair to do this? Well, we actually bought these chairs for our kitchen area, and we had our one of our interns, you know, just put it together kind of the wrong way. Right. And uh, at the very end of the calendar, there's a, a little spot where we have some pictures of as these things were happening. Um, so you can see that he's got the, the chair actually put together correctly at that point. <laughs> we, we did entertain the idea of, of having that golden hammer be in every shot. But there were a couple where we just couldn't find a place for Made it. Made no but, sense. Yeah, but that, that golden hammer is from a previous year's calendar. And you too. just keep the hammer around in the office, huh? Yep. Well, and the story there is, you know, when when every when all the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail, right? Exactly. That's a the old saw. All right, we're on to April. Don't repeat yourself. Don't Re- repeat yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Repetition is the root of all software evil. Evil, evil, evil. This one we we felt was a good one to include, and and a couple of uh, folks on Twitter caught the fact that we already had this one in the 2011 calendar. Right. That's funny. <laughs> See what I did there. <laughs> uh, and it looks like this is was was this a bot image? Yeah, this one was uh, a, a stock image of the of the chalkboard and stuff. We right. swapped out some things uh, to make the apple a different color than it was in the first one and other minor changes. Right. But it's, yeah, it's just a chalkboard with I will not repeat myself repeated five times uh, with bits of chalk and a, and a brush and an apple. Pretty straight up. Yep. Can't argue with that. And this is, I think, one of the most fundamental principles of software development. Like right. All the other principles, all the other design patterns, for the most part, are like ways to achieve less repetition in your code. Just, just about. I mean, there's very few exceptions. Yeah, I, but I don't think anybody sets out to repeat themselves either. 
So no, it's but, almost, but, but they but, don't think they are. Yeah, copy-paste programming is so easy to get oh, stuff done uh, productively, you know? I Google a chunk of code, I copy a chunk of code, I paste it into my code, and then I paste it in more places because if it's good once, it's good twice. That's if right. it was code to copy and paste your code, now that would be funny. <laughs> Getting very meta. As long as it compiles, it must be right, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Compilation is sufficient testing for me. <laughs> the computer likes it. I like it, too. All right. Let's move on to May, the whole team activity. United we stand, divided we fall. Well, let's look. We got some cubicles here. And uh, in the middle cubicle, we have all sorts of keep out signs. Private property, access without permission is prohibited. Development zone, keep out. Uh, keep out. This means you. There's a lock on the screen with a skull and crossbones that says keep out. You're basically saying, you know, don't go off and do your own thing. Yeah. Well, and also don't have, uh, borders between say your developers and your testers. This yeah. the idea for this came from, uh, Jim Holmes, who's, uh, real big into, into testing. Right. Also a fellow Telerik person. Um, and you know, it's, it's important to have your testers be involved and your customers and others be involved in the project Yeah, and not feel like, you know, it's an us versus them mentality. Sure. And so you see this, uh, this is less about software, more about process, I think. Huh? Yeah, it is. Well, and no hucking stuff over the wall. You know, these days I'm really concerned about DevOps, like operations can be involved closely in this as well. They Certainly. have lots of insight into yeah, what's going definitely. on. Definitely. And this comes back to to uh, the XP extreme programming principle of sure. uh, collective code ownership. So if you've got like some sections of your software that only Bob's allowed to touch, right? You know, that's that's a bad sign. Yeah, that's the main thing. Is more than one person, everybody can look at stuff. You know, does that mean that you have to regularly have sessions where somebody uh, looks at code that they have no interest in in their daily routine? That you're constantly exposing developers to each other's code, whether they need it or not. Because uh, how, well, how well, do you do? How do you do that? That seems the like easiest way. I mean, the way we do it at, at Telerik Services is we do a lot of pair programming. So yeah, when you want to work on a particular story, you don't you don't work only on the stories on the stuff you know how to do. Right. You just take take the next one that's in. We use Kanban a lot. So the right. next highest priority story you grab, and if you aren't familiar with that section of code, you just pair up with the person that is. And by the time you're done, now you both are familiar with that section of code, and it, it tends to spread the knowledge very quickly. To two people, though, but, you know, do you, do you take that a step further and say, okay, you're working on this project this week, now you're going to go, you know, separate your brain and work on something else and switch with somebody, so so there's more people that know more about all the code? In our case, it tends to, to kind of work over time, yeah. that, that the cross-pollination, you know, very quickly, everybody's seen everything. Okay. Um. It you know it, your mileage will vary. It depends on how big your project is and how many team members you're talking about. In my experience, I've not needed to uh, to artificially have people forced to work on stuff or, or look at stuff that isn't related to a story. Our our big thing we're trying to do is is deliver business value as quickly as possible. So yeah, the main, the evil number is one. There's never one person working on something. At least two. Right, right. Yeah, it's like your bus factor, or your truck factor. Like how many of your developers need to get run over by a truck for your project to be at risk? And <laughs> and pair programming. <laughs> I don't want to see the calendar shot for that. <laughs> no thanks. I mean, the other approach that I've taken is the is the Friday afternoon code review, where pizza is deployed and the afternoon is spent with everybody showing off what they've worked on and mm -hmm. having a conversation about it. So that multiple sets of eyes do get to look at different pieces of code. I also like the sort of pressure that it creates that you're putting on a show for your bit. And it kind of, kind of breaks down walls. And we have conversations and we teach each other things as well. Yep. But uh, I, what I appreciate is that 
pair programming seemed to be this fictional thing for a long time. It's nice to hear, you know, you simply talk about it. This is how we do stuff now. Yeah, and it's, I mean, a lot of companies have, like, stumbling blocks getting there. Like, first you have to have this whole idea that, you know, the the productivity of your developers is not tightly related to how much they're typing. The, yeah, the total right? lines of code written. Yeah, and, and then you've got to come up with the idea that, you know, you have to actually have a space that they can sit two people next to each other and work at one computer. Right. Which if you've got all these nice little desks or, or cubicles that are set up in like an L or a U configuration where like one person can sit at the center of, of everything, but no other person could possibly sit there. Right. Then that doesn't work. And that's how a huge number of companies are set up. So, you know, we've got like an open team room with all our computers are on tables. They've got two monitors, two keyboards, two mice. So you don't even have to pass the keyboard back and forth and it makes it really easy. Just a, and just a switcher. No, no. They're, they're both hooked in at the same time. Oh, they're just all USB. Right. So, so like if you're both touching the mouse at the same time, you're kind of fighting over it. And we yeah. keep we keep wishing Windows would let like one of them go and use this monitor on the right and and use this mouse pointer and you know have two mouse pointers active. Windows doesn't do that, but but, but would no, it be cool? It would be nice if it did. <laughs> That's neat. But it isn't interesting that it seems these days more and more I'm finding the very simple workspaces, straight benches, decent chairs. Yep. None of this curvy stuff, none of these isolation walls is what everybody wants to work in. Well, I, I wouldn't work otherwise, but I know it's not for everyone. So, I mean, some people want to just have their own space, put their headphones on and, and go sit in the dark and crank out code. I have an interesting observation from being here at the Westin in Bellevue, and that is, you know, you, many hotels, when you walk into registration in the lobby, there's a desk, you know, and there's there's a there's a back way to get behind the desk, but you do not go behind that desk. Like it's uh, it's like a wall. It's us and you, right? So right. So you, you you feel sort of this disconnect or this authority, you know. But when you go to check in at an airport and you go to the desk, you know they have the scale right there, and they, you know it, it doesn't happen all the time. But sometimes the the people will walk around and outside over that scale. You know what I mean? And it, it, it's a little bit of a different. It's sort of like here we're here to help you. You know, you feel like you're you're uh, reachable, uh, sort of. And here at the Westin, they have islands instead of a big desk. And so there's a person who's checking you in, standing behind the island. But there's a space there where you could walk around there. They could walk around to you. And I just realized that that made me feel more comfortable. You know, checking into a hotel where I feel like I'm not, you know. Uh, walking up to a Soviet era, uh, you know, uh, office building. Yeah, you've got to go talk to the man to see if he's going to let you have a room. And you think that relates to like programmer workspaces where yeah, like the yeah, customer absolutely. feels more comfortable because they could actually come sit down next to the developer and they could work collaboratively on the absolutely on the, the space and the the um, uh, the accessibility, not in a cube. You know right. that I don't have to go into a maze to find my spot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. More open concepts. More room. I mean, really, when you go to straight bench like that, three people can sit in front of a monitor pretty easily. Yeah, sure. Although pair programming, I think, does uh, have diminishing returns as you add more more eyes to it. I think two's enough. Right. But then, then there's always the other conversations that happen. The other thing I like about the open design, I actually talked about this with Microsoft guys as well, is Microsoft, one of their big features is everybody gets an office. But now they're talking about that one of the reasons that Microsoft employees generate so much email is that they can't talk to each other. Right. They're, everybody's in their own office, so they just constantly send these CC emails. And there are certain groups inside of Microsoft that are tearing down those walls that want open concept. The teams want to sit together. And as soon as they did that, their email flow dropped dramatically. 
Sure. They didn't need to generate email for every conversation anymore. They had the conversation directly and there was less going on. And it just, you know, I remember thinking in the early days that, wow, isn't it cool that Microsoft gives everybody an office? That's really neat. But there's a price to be paid. Right. Well, the isolation is a, is a sort of metaphor that carries over into the whole corporate culture of Microsoft as a whole. I mean, you know, you see these departments that don't know what each other is doing, you know, and so therefore make plans and, and architecture that sometimes, uh, you know, well, and it clashes. also diminishes trust. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're working with somebody and you know them as a person that you face to face interaction with, you're going to be a little more, you know, forgiving if if they send an email that you could take the wrong way. Yeah. Whereas if they're in some other office and you never talk to them except by email and they send something that rubs you the wrong way, you, your assumption might be that, oh, he's a jerk. You know, right. I don't know why he's trying to do that to us. But it isn't it always the emails you rattle off quickly that the ones that get you in trouble? The yeah. kind that if the guy was sitting behind you, you just turn around and go, hey, and you'd never be an email in the first place. Right. All right, where are we at? June, don't call us, we'll call you. Keep your options open. And the picture is a blue sky with uh, palm trees and a street sign that says Hollywood Principle. What is the Hollywood Principle? Well, the Hollywood Principle is basically, you know, summed up as don't call us, we'll call you. Right. And is, is you know, a way to invert dependencies so that you have more loosely coupled code. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, if you were going to write a, an application that uh, had a menuing system, you could write it all so that the console exe, you know, took over everything and rendered the menu and, and just blocked and waited for some keyboard to to, to trigger the next menu. Right. Um, but in you know more modern GUIs and and systems where you've got events and click events and things like that, the system basically is able to defer to the the application where they can now write a click handler or they can write a page load handler or whatever, um, and and let them write code within it without. You know the system, you know Windows Forms or ASP.NET, having to control everything. So you're saying use SignalR? Yeah, <laughs> I, SignalR is nice, but that's the idea, right? Yeah, you know, have have something call you when it needs to tell you what's going on, rather than sitting and polling for it. Yep. Yeah, these all these inversion control principles, like all of these things that we're doing, are headed towards exactly that sort of mindset more and more. Right. And this is one of the images that uh, that we didn't shoot, so we didn't actually send our, our designers off to California, although they probably would have liked that. Yeah, sure, just to get a picture of a palm tree. Right. Yeah, yeah. We couldn't figure out uh, where to put a golden hammer on this one, so, <laughs> yeah. so it, it's one that doesn't have it. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense there. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is. Ah, it must be that happy time again. My favorite time of the show when we get to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection, everything that Telerik does in one box, a $2,000 value, and today's winner is Thor Bernson. Congratulations, Thor. Golf clap for you. And uh, so, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, and uh, answer a few questions, and you could be one of the thousands of members of the .net Rocks fan club. Every show, we give away a DevCraft Complete Collection. Every December, we give away $5,000 worth of custom technology. And last year, we gave it away to Rob Corbett. He won a a dev machine configured and spec'd out by Mr. Richard Campbell with a Kinect for Windows, a big 27-inch monitor, and a gesture pack. That was, and a touch monitor. Is, that was a touch monitor as well, so he can do his Win8 development right on it. He doesn't have to go to a separate device. It's uh, totally the modern apps development machine. It's pretty cool. we got to start branding those and selling them, huh? <laughs> yeah, I love that idea. And uh, Steve, if you had five grand to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Me, I would probably buy a, a new Ultrabook, and uh, I'm looking at uh, trying to find a uh, Acer S7 that looks nice. It's got a touch screen. Oh, yeah? 
can't find one with eight gig of RAM or more. So I'm, I'm, that's what I would like. And, you know, it won't cost five grand. So I'll throw in a, you know, a 30 inch touch monitor with it. A Surface Pro, maybe? Surface Pro is also on my list. Yeah, also possible. Also doesn't need a, that much money, which is a good thing. I was, I am looking at some new generation monitors now that are higher resolution. So they're now going to, uh, the, the quad HD resolution. So it's 2560 by 1440. You need DisplayPort or DVI-D to drive it, but they're 27 inch. So they're about 110 pixels per inch, which is a, a full third higher than most 27 inch monitors and, and it's a really crisp imaging. Uh, you know, we're getting into an interesting place here. This, the monitor resolutions are not done yet. It doesn't end at 1080p. Yeah, and it's been disappointing to me the last few years that all the monitor manufacturers thought that HDTV should, you know, define what the monitors should look like. Because, you know, I like vertical resolution when I'm dealing with code and having it drop from, you know, 1600 by 1200 or 1920 by 1200 down to these 1080 things that yeah. I was not a fan of that. Well, now you can, you, I just read the specs on two monitors that are 1440 high, so you can get a little extra height out of it that way. Yep. And we, it's only 27 inch, so the, the font's pretty small. Mm. You got to have good eyes. We're all getting older. Yep. Would it be a good time to mention where people can get these calendars still? Yeah, absolutely. All right, so these are available from uh, gear.telerik.com. Okay. And since we're already into 2013, and this is the 2013 calendar, so they're uh, you know kind of degrading on the shelf as we speak, uh, if you buy one now, you, you get two, two for one. Oh, nice. Excellent. And um, are the images available in thumbnails somewhere so we can go look at them and laugh and blah, blah, blah? Uh, I have a few of them on Flickr from the previous years. Mm-hmm. I don't have this year's uh, out there yet. Okay. But you can also get the digital images with license to use them yourself in your presentations, your blog posts, whatever, or oh, as great. your desktop wallpaper. Um, also at gear.telerk.com for four ninety five. Awesome. So let's get to July. Solid guidelines for structures that can survive shifting tides. The picture is of a sandcastle built in photograph by Mark Flynn at sandodyssey.com. That's a great photo. Uh, and it, it's an amazing sandcastle. But what's wrong with it? Well, the, yeah, the problem here is that it, it, it's a castle, so it should be strong and sturdy, but it's, it's, uh, it's washing away here in, in, the, in the water. It's, it's right up on the beach, too, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not solid, so that's the, uh, the thing there. Yeah. And solid, of course, I already mentioned the, you know, the solid principles of object-oriented programming, which I've got a, a course on Pluralsight about, but I'm a big fan. And what is, can you rattle off those principles off the top of your head? Are you that? Oh, you bet I can. So there's <laughs> the single responsibility principle, the mm-hmm. open-closed principle, the Liskov substitution principle, the interface segregation principle, and the dependency inversion principle. And that's how you get solid from that. Yep. Uh, Uncle Bob. Exactly. At, at yep. the core of all that. I've almost seen it, look at it in some ways as like the evolution past agile. It was really about, okay, let's go further into this and talk about really how we're building our code. Yep, and that's where the whole software craftsmanship thing comes from. And so, yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan, and he's been great on the show as well. August, dog fooding. If it's good enough for Fido, a lovely bowl of kibble with a big bone beside it. And I like the knife and fork, just to, you know, something to go in there. Yeah, and it's a very uh, elegant setting, actually, very much, very elegant. And, I guess the term dog fooding came from the phrase eating your own dog food, which means that you sell dog food, you got to be confident enough about your product to actually use your product, and that means eating it. Yeah, I think that the term actually was from uh, in the 70s, there was a, an Alpo commercial 
where the the actor would would say it's so good even my dog eats you know alpo and um later years uh, one microsoft manager sent an email to another one about how they needed to be eating their own dog food mm. referring to using their own products internally and it's right. it's taken off from there but yeah definitely a, a good way to make sure your stuff actually works is to use it yourself and uh we can see that inside microsoft i guess um you know, in terms of WPF, Visual Studio is a WPF app. Uh, I don't. I'm not so sure about any of the other ones, but uh. well, I mean, I would argue one of uh, that's a that was a weak example. You know, they went years without implementing WPF. They finally did the the uh, Visual Studio one. Uh, you know, again, I put my IT hat on. They're always running the latest version of Exchange, the latest version of Office, all the stuff that's pre-shipping way before anybody else is. They really do kick the snot out of those kinds of products. I think it's one of the reasons. That those products do as well as they do, you know, is Exchange is the dominant mail server for better or worse, and it because it's tested for hundreds of thousands of users. Yeah, and I know they use you know the latest version of Windows when they're coming out in, internally, and the latest versions of Visual Studio, DevDiv, their folks are all using. So absolutely, but it, it's got to be substantially harder for us as contract developers. You're building an app for a domain that we actually don't work in. It's pretty tough to test that well. Yeah, if you're writing software for for somebody else's business and and you don't do that business, then it's it's more challenging. But that just makes it all the more important that you sit down with your users regularly and and see your application through their eyes. Yeah, you've got to make other people eat the dog food, right? And but you got to see them do it. Like, yes. I think it's pretty important to to be involved at that level. Yeah, it's it's amazing how often you go and you actually go through your application, you know, as a user, and and you are like, well, who the heck designed it like this? <laughs> oh wait, that was me. Right. <laughs> I've also found that it's certain personalities in my customers' site, and they're not always the easy ones to get along. In fact, I think they're consistently the hardest to get along with. That are your right dog fooders, that that are kind of relentless and and nitpicky and pushy about how they want things to work that that end up being the p- folks you can count on to actually make the app better yeah yeah sometimes those those painful customers that always have something to say they're yeah. they're, they're very valuable they're very valuable they're giving you feedback although you have to be careful that you don't build things for the loudest customer and not for the most yeah you know number or value of customers yeah, the, the, the frustration i have with the quiet ones is that they won't express an opinion Right. Right. That they just go along with it, whether it works well with them or not. I really want someone who's opinionated and willing to push on it. It's not somebody, there are always people I want to have a beer with. They are people that give me insight into their app, however rudely they might do it. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Component1Spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component One. Smarter components for smarter developers. Indeed, indeed. All right, let's move on to September. Naming things. One of the hardest tasks in computer science. Man, you you uh, hit the nail on the head here. It is very difficult, and especially, you know, the, the picture is uh, of a name tag on a shirt. And hello, my name is OBJ underscore object MNGR class which is just a bad idea. 
Yep. But, you know, you do when you're just, especially when you're just messing around, you know, you're prototyping or something. Uh, it's at least we've gotten to the point where we're not using variable names like A, B, C. Well, some of us have. And you'd be surprised what you'll find. You yeah. Know, looking at uh, other codes still being written today. But yeah, these these are certainly things we should know better than yeah. to be doing. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a trade-off because you want your code to be readable. So you don't want super long names, but you know, a, a, a good 20 letter, 25 letter name of a, of a variable that describes what it does or an object uh, is probably a good idea. Yeah, names are often a source of, of smells in your code that, right. that warrant refactoring typically. Like if you've got a, a class that's like, Anything manager is usually, you yeah. know, a, a bad sign. Oh, you're going to hell for that one. Yeah. Or or utils or something like that. And then, you know, some of the things we don't need in modern IDEs anymore when we have, uh, you know, statement completion and, and mouse it over to see what type it is. Mm-hmm. So, so like Hungarian notation has, has thankfully fallen out of favor. Pretty much obsolete. Well, you know, there's the big problem where you have everything with the same prefix. And then, you know, you go to do statement completion and you're now at the whim of alphabetical order right. where you cannot complete it because it's not unique enough and you have to scroll down through 20. Right, or, or yeah. type a whole lot of stuff or anyway type. before you even get to any useful statement completion. So do you have any other tips for us in terms of naming conventions? Um, well, the, one of the ones um, that I like is that you're, the longer the scope of the variable is the the more descriptive the name should be. Mm. So if you're in a in a really small for loop and you want to use i as your loop counter because that's the convention, yep. that's probably fine. Sure. Right? You don't have to call it loop counter or something verbose. Right, right, right. Um, but if you've got a a variable that is maybe a constant um, that's going to be used throughout your system, it might be good to give that a longer name than i. Of course. Right? So i as constant that's pretty evil (laughs) (laughs) yeah that is evil i broke everybody's counter that day (laughs) i is always one (laughs) and in javascript you could totally just overwrite that global oh yeah it absolutely could that is evil (laughs) my friend carl made me think of that i blame him all right it's october and I uh, saw the picture, the DVD rewinder, the greatest product ever made, the DVD rewinder. Yeah, I gave them out for Christmas presents one year. I think that was what, something you found on Mondays, wasn't it? Yep. And I love the box. It actually says, now compatible with Blu-ray. <laughs> you, you put your DVD on it and you close the lid and you press the button. It goes, and then it blinks when it's done. <laughs> the principle you aren't gonna need it don't waste resources on what you might need i wrestle with yagni you know i really do because sometimes you need it right well it it, it all comes down to how much experience you have and how confident you are and whether or not you're gonna need it sure and and the you should typically err on the side of build the simplest thing that can work mm-hmm. and 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 go on to the next one uh, but if you know, again, that I'm going to need a persistence layer, yep. right? you can go ahead and just write the persistence layer. I mean, this is where we get into the dynamic of, of architecture to development. You know, the, the, there was a real wave almost against architecture uh, when, when these agile principles really started landing. It's just like, you know, we'll just figure it out as we go. And then you end up cobbling together pieces of a persistence layer over time where you're just stashing values wherever you can and trying to hang on to them where 
an architect would have taken a step back and gone, well, given these needs, we're going to need one of these. So let's get that service in place early so that everybody's working in the same location and we can manage it effectively. Right. And, and Yagni is another one that comes from extreme programming. Mm-hmm. And, and the whole reason why it works is because you're writing well-factored, simple, easy-to-change code. Yeah, you're committed to going back and changing it when you discover, oh, we need a persistence layer. Let's go through and pick up everything that's already being persisted and get it into this layer. Right. Whereas if you write tightly coupled, you know, big ball of mud spaghetti code, yeah, and you didn't put in something that you needed, then it's really hard to add it later. Mm-hmm. And that's why people want to build everything in the kitchen sink into right. their code early because they're used to these legacy systems that are impossible to change once yeah. they grow beyond a certain size. That, that mindset of going to throw everything into it just sort of speaks to you. I have no confidence in being able to change my code. Right. Okay, November. Know where you're going. Which is sort of the antithesis of Yagni, isn't it? You ain't going to need it. So, because you don't know where you're going, maybe. So, but if you know where you're going, maybe you know that you need it. Sure. All right. So, know where you're going. Not sure where we're heading, but we're making great time. And the picture is of a guy riding a motorcycle, obviously in motion because it's blurred. And he's got a blindfold on. How on earth did you get that picture? Uh, that's actually taken outside our office on the street. That's Thomas, one of our developers, who's our, our model here. That's his motorcycle. And uh, we, I think, didn't have him actually moving. I think that's some uh, Photoshop magic ah, okay. that's making that happen. Because that does look like movement. Yeah. All right. Well, good. At least no developers were harmed in the making of this picture. That's right. <laughs> yes. I was just thinking... he. He doesn't look sufficiently frightened to actually be in motion. <laughs> it's if I had a, I've having ridden motorcycles, I have taken sand in the eyes, and then you are in motion, and you find a way to open your eyes anyway. So right. this was absolutely terrifying for me. So we know where we're going, but we don't necessarily know what we're going to need when we get there. Is that the idea? Yeah, and this one relates to understanding the whole of yeah. the application you're building, like, the big picture. Yeah, know know what is the problem that it's trying to solve. Because if you don't understand that and you're just trying to solve this micro problem, you could easily be building the wrong thing. And there's there's two ways we do things wrong as developers. We either build the thing wrong or we build the wrong thing. And, <laughs> and, and it's so often that it's it's the wrong thing that we're working on. And if we just knew what the direction for the product or the project was, uh, we could make better decisions. Do you have to do a lot of sort of vision work around a project to come up with these core statements of, you know, these are the goals Everybody has the same one-sentence description of the app. Is that a way to tackle that? That could be, sir. Um, I think the biggest thing is just having communication with the customer mm-hmm. and, and regular uh, feedback from the customer and not doing you know, the old school waterfall. You know, you have a big kickoff meeting and then six months later you, you say, ta-da, and you deliver your code. Right. Uh, you know, if, if you're talking to the customer every week or, or more often than that, you're not going to go too far you know, down the wrong path. So even every sprint is not really enough. You want more frequent contact than that. I, ideally, yeah. I mean, the, the, I'm again, I, I, I'm a fan of extreme programming. Right. I think it, it's unfortunate that it didn't do better in the marketplace, but mm-hmm. you know, they they want the customer to be part of the team, right? And be co-located. And you know, like we were just talking, you should be able to just turn your head and say, "Hey, Bob, you know, what do you this think do of? this or that?" Right. And and not have to start an email chain or or schedule a demo session for next Thursday. One of the biggest battles I've had with customers when we were doing the, these kinds of projects was actually getting that domain experts workload at the company reduced it's like oh bob's going to help you with all the information you need for this project great what workload has he unloaded so that he can do that right and it's and it's at the beginning of every of those conversations none 
Right. They've always got a full workload and they'll do this. It's like, I need a lot more of your time than you actually have available at this point. Yeah, it's 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 infrequent that you actually have the luxury of a full-time customer person I, there. I'm excited if I've got half time. But it, I, I, the fun part is actually having that conversation. That is, at, you know, hey, by the way, the business stakeholder role in this takes a lot of time. Right. And so, it is a major risk factor. We cannot begin until we have proof that we have a significant resource allocated here, that Bob's available to us. Show me that you've unloaded his work. Right. So yeah, it, it's important. Once that's done, then I have a little more confidence we're actually going to get that stuff dealt with. Not to mention the other half of this, which is the developer. The developer wants to work on the f- most fun thing that they can. And, you know, that's not always the right thing or in the, ri- in the right time, not always prioritized. Yes. Also true. Yeah. Definitely. So, you know, fortunately, uh, our developers are mature enough to uh, realize that they don't always get to write the fun code. Although solving problems is fun all by itself. Oh, yeah. I mean, if it, now the other conversations I've had during the MVP summit, we're talking about a particular team uh, in Microsoft that says once they get ready for the next sprint, the first thing they work on is the hardest problem. And nothing else gets to be worked on until the hardest problem is properly spiked. But, you know, here's what it happens. Okay, one of you is going to work on the new webcam feature that's going to send images up to our, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the other is going to build another form. Yeah. All right, right. Who wants what? You know, they're going to be fighting over that webcam thing because that's fun. Yep. Yep. That's where you just make them pair up and they both crank out the webcam thing together and then yep. they go knock out the form. All right. I think it's December. And it we're talking about code readability. Well-written code speaks for itself. And uh, the image. This is awesome. Yeah. It's very matrix, isn't it? Yeah. It is actually code that spells out readme in the green screen coloring. So it's green screened. Um, with a little reflection. It is very awesome. And is this real code? Steve? Yeah, this is this is code you could actually run. And there's there's a little uh, bit of Easter eggs in there that I I don't necessarily want to spell out for your uh, listeners. <laughs> there is an Easter egg. Look close. That's right. So if you're actually willing to sit down and type all of this code and run it, something's going to happen. That's right. Or or just, you know, parse it and use your JavaScript skills. It's actually JavaScript code. So, Do you think you could figure it out just by looking at it? I, I don't know that I would uh, have the patience to do that, but I yeah. bet someone could do that. Okay. Well, you know, it, readability is a, is a great feature. Right. Nobody and, wants you know, to. If this were well-written code, it would be obvious to all of us what it did. That's right. Yes. No, this is artistically written code, so it's bloody hard to figure out. Yes. What makes code unreadable? Well, we already talked about naming things, you know, yeah. so having, you know, bad names is one. Uh, comments can frequently make code harder to read because... And as we mentioned on the show many times, comments are bad because they don't change. People leave the comments when they change the code. Sure. And yeah. it happens all the time. You can never trust the comments because no. you don't know whether or not they're still accurate. So, you always have to read the code to see what it actually does. Right. Regardless of what the comment says. So, you know, you could, I have little comments like, woohoo! I got here, you know? Yeah, but uh, that's about it. Yeah, Self-commenting code. Yes. The the best comments are ones that say why, not what or how. Right. Uh, especially if you're doing something that is counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Like, so someone doesn't come along after you and say, wait, you're doing it the inefficient way. I'll optimize it to do it that way. You put a little comment in there that says, don't optimize this because it breaks. Right. You know, that, that we, kind of thing is helpful. So, you know, when you and I did that joint session on web scaling, I was talking about the, the pattern for 
cash checking where you check to see if the cash object is null, then you lock the method, then you check to see if the cash object is null again. Right. Which is totally counterintuitive, but it is the correct pattern. And you have to write a comment block on top that says, if this looks stupid to you, don't touch it. Right. Go ask someone who wrote it. Yep. Because it, it, it's not an odd. Why are you checking for null twice? That looks dumb. Mm-hmm. And there are chunks of code like that. And just long code is, is harder to read. You know, if, if you've got a 200 line method and it's got a bunch of regions inside the method, you yeah. know, that's usually a bad sign. Uh, <laughs> nested or, loops. Or, oh yeah, nested loops uh, or comments throughout there. It says begin doing this part and then go do that part. Uh, yeah, gee, thanks. Every, every one of those you can pull out into a separate method and then name the method, you know, do that thing, right? Right. So. That makes it much easier to read. And, and then when someone reads that method, they understand it's just doing that one thing in its own context. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Intent speaks to a lot. But generally, I wonder if it's also code-based. Like C-sharp and VB, very descriptive languages. But, you know, even well-written Perl is impenetrable. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, so I think some languages are naturally descriptive and some are not. Um, are we talking to JavaScript developers here? Uh, you know, about code readability because the worst code I've ever read seems to be view source. Well, and it doesn't help that a lot of the, the code on the web is it's minified, is minified and all that, right? Yeah. So that certainly isn't going to improve its readability. Yeah, minified, compressed, and sometimes even generated. And so there's really nasty things that are done to it. Well, you know, I guess now that I think about it, they don't really want you to read their code, do they? No, no. No. Now you're talking a whole other layer of stuff like obfuscation, which is, you know, you're really messing with code, make it as unreadable as possible. Right. And and we can't forget that it's not any particular language that's bad because we can all write crappy code in sure. any language. Yeah. If there, if there was a language that would protect you from that, we'd all be using it. Right. right. All right. Maybe F sharp. I can't, I'm still trying to figure that stuff out. You done any uh, F sharp, Steve? Very little. Very little. Or functional at all? I did scheme in yeah. college, you know, variant of Lisp, and that was Lisp. fun with lots of uh, parentheses and yeah. also very difficult to, to figure out what it was doing. Now, there's something that's just difficult to read just by the nature of what it does, not necessarily by the syntax or the names. Yeah, unless you really have your head around it. Yeah, well, people get used to reading, especially with F Sharp. I've always come back to, we got used to reading SQL. We started thinking in this sort of set-paced functional model i think we could get used to reading f sharp i just don't find we're writing enough of it i just the reason i got comfortable with sequels i wrote a ton of it so we you know i may I say i have to find a project where i have to write a ton of f sharp that it would just come out it i just don't know what that project is yeah and all the f sharp samples that i've seen which haven't been many i uh have uh, had very you know uh, terse variable names and things like that because they're just variables they're numeric variables mostly Right. Yeah. And that kind of thing. I mean, I, when I first was learning link, language integrated query, I wasn't very good at it. And mm-hmm. so I went and I found some exercises, some katas, um, and, and decided to do the kata using link as, as my tool. And you can do the same thing with F sharp or JavaScript sure. or whatever. And that's a great way that you can learn some of these. I'm, and I'm, I've become a big advocate of real practice, you know, and I think that's what you're really speaking to. Um, from the, from the perspective of kata is a real practice. I am not writing code to be sold or code for production or anything like that. I am writing code for practice. It's unpleasant, but it's necessary. And it actually makes me a better programmer. And yeah. be, more and more I become this belie- believer in the idea that we're not practicing our craft enough. We're working at it. We do the work, but we don't actually do the practice. Right. Yeah. So we actually shipped a bonus month in the calendar. Nice. That you guys just found. And, um, and this is January 2014. That's right. Sorta. 
Yeah, well, we had to we had to ship, uh, and we couldn't hold it any longer for waiting for this one to be done. <laughs> Because, you know, 2013 was here. So. <laughs> so, it's a partially drawn month and the... Uh, a pixelated photo. A pixelated photo of a tricycle with way too many features on it. And it has a built-in post-it note that says, for position only, final images will come shortly. The caption is, feature creep. Just one more feature and it's done. I like the bonus month. It ends at 13 and then there's a couple of hand-drawn squares. A hand-drawn Telerik uh, logo. Yeah, it's a partial month. That's awesome. That's very funny. It looks like it's been, you know, done in a, a sort of a mock-up style here. Yep. That's great. Yeah, we Sketch had, flow. We had fun with it. Well, and this is uh, software evilness right here, right? This is the... Well, it's feature creep. It is feature creep. I look at feature creep from the context of something like Word, where they have to keep shipping a new version or nobody will pay them anymore. And so, it's almost like they've got to the point where they've run out of good ideas. So, they have bad ideas. They get two versions. One where they put it in and one where they take it out. (laughs) (laughs) The new Coke. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like Maker's Mark. Remember that, Debock? But it's turned into a coup for them, right? That's been sort of a – they said they were going to have to – because the the demand of bourbon was so high, they were actually going to dilute the bourbon. They were going to add more water and reduce the uh, the alcohol rate. And, of course, everybody went nuts. Now they come back and say, okay, we're really sorry. We've heard you. We're not going to do that. And it sort of turned into a social marketing coup. They certainly got a lot of visibility out of it. So, yeah, if you think about the benefit to Maker's Mark for doing that, first of all, people thought, oh, my God, Maker's Mark is not going to be the same anymore. I'm going to go buy as many bottles of this stuff as I can right now. Right, right. And then they complained and then Maker's Mark said, all right, actually, we're not going to do that. And so, uh, you know, so there you go. That's a, that was either uh, really true or a brilliant PR campaign. <laughs> yeah, I don't know the answer. One way Hopefully or the other. they didn't lose too many loyal customers who are now worried about them messing with it later. But I think if, if you're a fan of the taste, that that's not going to change based on some corporate announcement well maybe it was either that or raise the price so now that they the fans have spoken they'll raise the price so they've won twice yeah <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about feature creep here because the other, what constitutes creep per se we all know, know the term but if the customer is asking for more features we just call that revision three or four right well yeah and i think that's fine i mean the the notion here is that when you hold up delivery and you miss your ship date because somebody's got a pet feature that just has to be included yeah like the month of january the next year right right and and if you just ship early and often Mm -hmm. uh and and the customers expect that oh i'm gonna get another release in three months it's not a big deal yeah it's no big deal if it's not in this one well i'm also thinking certainly microsoft's on this bandwagon coming into 2013 but more people, more and more people talking about this that releasing quarterly is just not acceptable anymore. Like we, we, why aren't we releasing monthly? Okay, can we do this concept of continuous delivery so that it literally features are perpetually trickling out instead of having big bangs every so often? Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a big fan of that. I mean, that's with, with DevOps and with, you know, continuous integration. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we've got, you know, continuous deployment. You know, these are all tools that are just making us more and more lean, more and more uh, able to deliver value quicker, which I think we need as an industry. Yeah, I felt like a few years ago, we came into these practices with tools like Git and TFS configured in the Agile mode and so forth that really benefited the developer that checked in early and often. That the longer you were out, the more you were going to struggle. And so you got to this reflex of you build a little, you check it in, you build a little, you check it in. And it felt like you sort of... 
remember we used to build the whole feature and then worry about integration? Right. Now it feels like we're always integrating, always integrating, and later adding in the UI elements and the sort of visible parts of the of the the feature. And now in DevOps, we're seeing that being pushed all the way to production so that the the code may not be visible to the user yet, but much of it is running in production already. So there's confidence in it. Right. And we give operations ability to sort of control what pieces run, what pieces don't, so that we can see how well it's going to work. But it sounds like feature creep's going to be this permanent thing. We're always creeping features out. Oh, certainly. It just goes on all the time. Yeah, the, just, just don't let it delay shipping. Yeah. Right. Well, I love this idea. If we're shipping every day, you ain't delaying anything. Right. Like you're just moving all the time. Well, in, in like software development and probably in other fields as well, you know, the, as, a, as a process, anything that's painful you want to try and do more often. Right. Not, you know, your reflex is to do it less often because, oh, my God, that's painful. That hurts. Yeah. But, like, if, if integration is is painful when you do it every six months, do it every three months. Do right. it every month. Do it every day. And same thing with deployment. I mean, if your deployments are painful, do them more often. And then if, if that's just taking too much time, automate it. Yeah. You'll work out the pain. If you've got to do that every day, you're either going to completely implode or you're going to find a way to make it not painful. Exactly. Routine. Uh, and I've done, the, I've been working in, in the DR side for years and we got with an organization where they were failing over between two data centers every month. So, there just wasn't a big deal. <laughs> Everybody knew how to do it. It wasn't a quote disaster anymore. It was Wednesday. Right. And we flopped to the other data center on Wednesday. Yeah, or, or like the chaos monkey. Yeah. Is it Netflix? That's yeah, Netflix does the chaos monkey where they're yeah. blowing up software on a regular basis right. so that you just know you can stay up. Although they've blown them up, selves up. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what happens. Well, Steve, it's been a fantastic hour. It's always great to talk to you, of course, and, and it was I really enjoyed going through the calendar. Cool. Thanks, guys. I great. enjoyed uh, being back on the show. Absolutely. Keep doing what you do, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a van by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a